So how many downloads per year do you get on your podcast? It's about a million five a year. So we're here in New York City. I got my good friend Armand Farouk. He is in town. We had to shoot some content. We just got back from Rumble, which was fun. Really nice little boxing class. How do you like New York so far? Dude, I love it. There's something about the, I'm generally like an intense guy, yeah. but there's something about the pacing, the intensity, the speed. Someone's always doing something. And what's nice too is I used to live in SF and it was always someone was doing something in tech, but yeah. people are doing everything from like yoga on a boat to like an art exhibit. Um, so I love it, man. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So if you're in the tech sales space, you know Armand from his podcast, 30 Minutes to President's Club. It's statistically, I think, the top performing sales podcast. It's also the most valuable, in terms of the information they share, sales podcast. Everyone knows you for that podcast, but what I think you don't talk about enough is like the behind the scenes of the podcast. How do you get started with a podcast? How do you monetize a podcast? How do you go into the setup of each episode? And so I'm hoping to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that with you today. Yeah, let's do it, man. And, and what's interesting is, it's not only we don't talk about it, we had to figure out a lot of this stuff on our own because I find that a lot of the folks who have done this either do it like Joe Rogan style or Tim Ferriss style where they have these massive podcasts, um, but we're very like niche and we had to figure out a lot of this stuff on our own. So uh, yeah, I'm excited. And to so you guys that. started in 2020, correct? That's right. Okay, so if you came up to me and you said, hey Vin, I'm gonna start a sales podcast in 2020, I would say, yeah, so you know, everyone else, three other 100 people also are doing the same thing. Like, yeah. What made you guys decide to try to start a sales podcast when it is such a saturated market? Well, I'll, I'll double down on it. Not only was everyone saying, why would you start another sales podcast? But we started it right when COVID hit because mm -hmm. we had nothing else to do. But who's listening to podcasts during COVID? No one's commuting anymore. So literally, That's it true. was probably the worst time possible to start a sales podcast. That's actually so true because I would consume all my podcasts on my bus ride from Jersey to New York every every single day before COVID. What was crazy is um, I, I'm still like very thankful that we succeeded during that time because once things started to open up, there was a huge pop when we could tell people were commuting again and people were listening on their drives. Wow. Yeah. But anywho, the, the, the reality is like, if there is a gap in the market with the way that content is done today, there should be no excuse for you to not go and fill that gap. Mm. And so at the time, um, I consumed a lot of sales podcasts and many of them were very great. I actually know a lot of those hosts super well, but the problem is you would have to listen to two, three, four, five podcasts, each one to two hours a pop. Sometimes they would just be mindset podcasts. Other times they would be thought leadership podcasts. Other times they would get some tactics in there. And I would be like metal detecting for like the one cold call opener in the seven podcast episodes that I would listen to. Right. And so what I would do is I would just start riffing with my good friend Nick, who's now my co-host, and we would just riff and riff and riff and we would share things with each other. And we were like, what if we just made the most dense place that you could get all this stuff at once? And that's why we started this thing. That's awesome. It's super intentional. If anyone ever listened to the podcast, and I was a guest on it a few times, and I was telling Armand, it's, it was super intimidating because they, they straight up open it up and they're like, don't mention fluff, don't mention mindset stuff. We want straight tactical things. If you mention fluff, we're going to remove it. I don't know if you or Nick said that, but I remember you guys saying that to me, and I'm like, okay, I need to like bring it on this podcast. And so you, know, you talk about identifying a need within the market, which was there's a lot of sales, sales podcasts, but they are a bit fluffy. And so you guys went the other route where you're saying, hey, we want to be strategical about it. And that's clear within the editing you do. So how did you come up with that structure for your podcast where you do remove all that stuff, you edit ahead, of, you edit afterwards, and you prep ahead of time? Where'd you come up with that? Yeah, so the, there are a couple things about the structure that if you, if you just unpack what is a 30 MPC episode, yeah. the first thing is that's very obvious is it's a 30 minute episode, right? And so we typically record every episode from 40 minutes down to 30. And why and 30? The reason that we wanted it to be 30 
is we wanted it to be one of those things that you could listen to it in between a meeting block. Mm. Or if you're on a quick commute, right? You're on a, you know, you take the San Francisco bus, it's 10 minutes to get to the bus stop, 15 minutes on the bus, you get in. You should be able to get an entire episode and an entire sales toolkit in under 30 minutes versus I would have to listen to half of it on the way and then half of it on the way back. And I usually didn't even want to listen to podcasts on the way home because I'm tired at the end of the workday. So it had to be 30 minutes and it also sounded pretty good. Yeah. And, and how long did it take you guys to scale? Like, was it instant growth or like, I mean, obviously you launched like three years ago, so it, it was kind of quick growth, but like, when did you see that big hockey stick? So a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, there, there's a lot of general advice on like, just make good content, just make good content. And that's true, bad content typically doesn't do well, but good content that no one can find exists everywhere. Some of the best podcasts out there are truly, no one listens to them. There's great content that no one listens to because their distribution sucks. So. A couple things that we did is, first, is about three or four months before we launched, Nick and I went and we prospected into like 10 other sales podcasts. And we made sure that we got appearances on all those podcasts so we could get an audience ourselves. Nice. And then number two, we started posting on LinkedIn so that we could get a little bit more of an engagement audience so that we could actually drive people to places. And then when we actually launched, one, we had a mid-sized LinkedIn following, frankly, a fraction of what it is today, um, but it was enough to start. Mm. But then two, once we launched, we reached out to every person we knew in the sales community and our family, friends, literally everyone we could possibly find. And we were like, please share this on LinkedIn. And so that first, what's funny is if you look at the downloads of our first three episodes, it's actually way higher than episodes four, five, and six, mm. because half of those downloads are like my cousin, my mom, or something like that. But that initial cluster of people that we created for the podcast got enough people sharing it wow. that it built an initial snowball. And then from there, it just rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And then the word of mouth and podcast just traveled like crazy. And that's a huge thing. Like I, we talk about distribution so much. You need to have that distribution, whether it's your personal brand, a newsletter, et cetera, so you can push out this content to more masses. One of the biggest challenges with podcasting is growth is damn near impossible. There's no organic algor algorithm that's like shooting the best podcast to us. Usually if you have a podcast you like, you stick to that podcast and you only listen to that podcast, unfortunately. And uh, so I'm curious, why did you guys think podcast was the best medium and then two, now that you guys are scaling, how are you guys getting to that second phase of growth? There's something about podcasts that are extremely conducive to professional development. And there is a combination of podcasts being very conducive to professional development and a sales community that's pretty vocal and active yep. on LinkedIn. There's, there are far, far, far fewer uh, finance, how to build a financial model podcast, or there are far fewer uh, how to build a product type of podcast, but there is this cult community around sales that was starting to build on LinkedIn that was very much conducive to the podcast type of listening. Mm. Um, so in terms of like what that means for future phases of growth is we felt like that was the best avenue to do something that Nick and I are extremely good at, which is tape delayed audio content mm -hmm. where we can ask people seven questions back to back and we can click pause and let them think so that they can re respond effectively and edit it tightly. 
And we knew that that would build the initial best first product. Right. And now what we've done is we've started to expand to other types of channels that can accomplish things that you can't do on a podcast, right? So an example of this is we have our webinar series. And what you'll notice is the webinars are never things that are similar to the podcast. So what can you do on a webinar that is not able to be done on a podcast? The first thing that you can do is we can screen share live emails mm. and we can tear those down. We can listen to live cold calls and live discovery calls and we can tear those down. We can engage with the audience and tear those down. So every single webinar is not called a webinar, it's called a tactic teardown for that reason. And so you host those webinars, is it on LinkedIn solely? LinkedIn Live? We do all of our webinars through Zoom and we send them out through our newsletter. Oh, cool. And so the webinars, the goal of the webinar is just to provide more value for your listeners or is it to attract a larger audience? So one of the things that is tricky about podcasts that you mentioned, which is, Number one, I have no idea who listens to 30 Minutes to President's Club, yeah. right? So I know there are X million downloads, right? But I have no idea who those people are. Uh, and then number two, the way that people find out about podcasts is largely through word of mouth. What's nice about webinars is the first reason that we did it is we felt like there was a compelling story that we could tell live right. that we could not tell through, the pod tell through the podcast. But then number two, what it allows us to do is it allows us to actually invite people into the room, right? and figure out who are the people who actually want to attend a 30 MPC webinar, right? And then what we can do is we can do things like building our mailing list, and then mm -hmm. we can launch new products off of that. So the webinars are the first thing that actually started our mailing list. And then after we started the webinars, we started our newsletter. And then now that we have a massive newsletter, now we're starting a YouTube channel, and we can shoot all the people who have followed us from the podcast to the webinar to the newsletter. We can now shoot those people over to YouTube, and they see a different slice of 30 MPC in all those different channels. Wow. So it's that like whole idea of like the hub and spoke. You have your podcast as the hub, and then all the spokes are these other distribution channels that you're trying to grow. Exactly right. We actually we call it the connective tissue strategy okay. internally, which is the hubs the the podcast was the initial hub mm -hmm. inside of 30 MPC. That was the first thing that we did. And to this day, it's still the, the highest growth channel that we have. But what you'll notice is the podcast point to the webinars, the podcast point to the newsletter, but the newsletter will point to a webinar, and the newsletter will point back to the podcast, or we'll point a podcast in a videogram on LinkedIn, yeah. and then on LinkedIn, we'll have a, uh, a LinkedIn post that does well, we'll put that on Twitter, and then the Twitter feed will go back to the podcast. So it all starts to work together, wow. so that no matter where you go, you can figure out what's going on in the world of 30 MPC. And how many downloads do you guys have now? In terms of the podcast. Yeah. So we started, God, when we first started the podcast, I think our first year was, it was between 250 and 500,000, right? Which is a solid, it was like a really solid first year. Yeah. The next year was 500 to 750. And then with the whole COVID opening up thing, with people commuting, and then also with Nick and I going full time and just putting way more muscle into this thing, it's skyrocketed. And now we're doing about a million to a million and a half this year. What was the average downloads per year you had, or maybe it was per month, in order to get your first sponsorship? Mm. So what's funny is we got our first sponsorship deal by accident. Is We actually got an introduction from Jason Bay, who's been a multiple-time multiple podcast guest, and he's an awesome guy. And there was a company that was actually looking to sponsor other podcasts. 
and Nick and I didn't even like know what to charge him. Yeah. And so we charged him like frankly an extremely low amount that's like way cheaper than any of our sponsorships. And we only had the podcast. We didn't have the webinars or anything. And we were like, hey, sponsor 10 episodes, right? And at the time, I think we were doing 300 or 400,000 downloads uh, per year. And so it wasn't even close to the 100K a month that we're doing right now. Wow. And so you mentioned earlier that you and Nick, Nick is the, uh, his partner, you guys both quit your job and, and you're full time on the podcast. From an outsider looking in, I understand that there's ad revenue for podcasts, right? But I don't really understand like the economics of a podcast. So talk to me through what it took for you and Nick to both say, hey, we can quit our jobs. And I don't know if you're replacing your income, but you're replacing it in some capacity where you guys feel comfortable with doing this full time. Yeah. So what was funny is we had one, two, three, four sponsorships because the moment someone realizes that they can sponsor the podcast, we have a lot of listeners who are at these companies and they okay. start to say like, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Marketer on my team, will you go sponsor the podcast? And so that started to grow and grow and grow, but still the revenue wasn't substantial. It frankly wasn't enough to cover the OTE of even one of us. I mean, Nick was an enterprise AE and I was a VP of sales, okay. right? And it wouldn't even cover the OTE of like half of one of ours, wow. right? The reason that we knew this was actually a thing was the reason it's hard to monetize podcasts is unless you're like the Joe Rogan podcast or the Tim Ferriss podcast where you have millions of downloads per episode, right? we might get 2 million a year this year, right? What's critical is the way a marketer evaluates you is they're looking at how many of those eyeballs can I make sure get onto my product? Mm -hmm. And the problem with podcasts is those eyeballs are invisible, like I mentioned earlier. So it's actually really, really hard to tell how many of those eyeballs are getting over to a customer. Yeah, hard to track that. Exactly, and so it's hard to justify the ROI. But when we can sell things as a package, like I was talking about with the connective tissue, and tell the story of how the podcast will get you the most eyeballs, right. and then you can track those eyeballs with the webinars, with the newsletters, et cetera, and then YouTube, social, and all these other things blow it up. Now we can start to charge way more than a marketer would normally pay for even like sponsoring an event. And so the brands that are paying for sponsorships, I'm sure they're asking like, hey, like what's the ROI or something like that. What is your answer to them of like, hey, this is the ROI that our podcast will provide you guys? Yeah. The answer that we typically give in return is, have you ever sponsored a billboard before? And if the answer is no, is have you watched a Super Bowl commercial before? If you would like to quantify the ROI of how much value Coca-Cola or Funyuns or whoever got out of the Super Bowl ad, good luck. Right. You will have no idea, right? That is going to be 50 to 75% of your 30 MPC spend is you're sponsoring the number one sales podcast in the world. And I would ask you to tell me, what is the value of making sure that every prospect who gets into your funnel knows who you are mm. when you're in a sales cycle? Yeah. You tell me what the value of that is. However, 25 to 50% of what you are spending is trackable. So let's take that 25 to 50% of your spend on 30 MPC and let's look at the webinar leads we've given you. Let's look at the newsletter that we've given you. Let's look at the content we've created for you and let's see what that drove. And honestly, sometimes the thing even pays for itself, not even accounting for the podcast downloads. Right. Yeah. The, the main use case I'm thinking about is, is awareness. Like, you know, I know at the company I work for, we are trying to do a better job at being a tool that sellers are familiar with and have brand affinity for. And so I know 
you know, the company I work for had reached out to you guys because of that use case. It's like, hey, we just want to be in the ears of all these salespeople. Like, we want salespeople to know our brand as a tool for the sellers. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's totally right. And that's the, uh, when we talk about doing a discovery call, one of the ways you can kick off, kick off a discovery call is by using typically language. And typically, the two types of problems someone wants to solve with 30MPC is number one, you feel like people in the sales community are not aware of who you are. Yeah. Or number two, you feel like people generally know who Salesforce is, for example, but it's hard for you to capture that intent or demand. Mm -hmm. Which of it is it for you? And I would say 75% of the people out there, they really care about just getting their name out there and making sure that everyone else knows them. Yeah. And so you guys have been now full-time on this for how many months? It's been full-time. Nick went first. So the way we divvy up duties is Nick runs all sales, mm -hmm. and I run all product and content. So Nick went full-time about a year ago, and then I went full-time in December, so five months. Wow. And so you've been full-time for about five months, Nick obviously longer. You obviously have a lot more time now to focus solely 100% of your efforts on 30MPC. What else is next for you guys? What, what are some other ways you're thinking about monetization? Like, I could totally see you guys throwing like a 30MPC like event where you have speakers, you have vendors come, like that would crush. Is that something that you've thought about? Yeah, we. I, I'd be curious for anyone watching this, please DM me and let me know if this would be interesting. But we had this concept once called the club, okay. right? Or uh, doing an actual event that would be called President's Club, where we would go and we would invite the top 10% of sellers at any company out there to some cool resort like Hawaii or something like that, and we would get folks to sponsor it. So that would be a really good time That's because yeah, it would be like stellar, it would be like elite elite sellers, it wouldn't be these events where everyone's just selling to each other, what have you. Um, and obviously we would have like great speakers up there and whatnot. That's one concept. But the other things that are really, really interesting is historically we've only monetized B2B. So we've done a lot of sponsorship deals. And we don't wanna do like a B2C course. We don't feel like that's our business. We feel like it would cheapen our brand a little bit. Um, but we don't feel like there are a ton of really good sales books out there. And we feel like there's a really good opportunity to write the book on cold calling, the book on cold email, the book on how to be a machine by 30 minutes to President's Club. Right. Well, the thing with the sale, sales books are challenging because the tactics change so much in, text, in, in uh, sales, specifically tech sales. Um, you know, I have a book, like people recommend fanatical prospecting. It's a good book. There's a lot of stuff that's outdated there. Question-based selling, another great book. A lot of it's outdated there. So that's kind of the challenge with the book, and I think you guys are a little bit more positioned to do so because you've had the conversations with so many different types of sellers from different generations totally. that you can combine something that uh, various different people are using into one compact piece of content. So I think that could work for you guys, and if maybe you do volumes, that could even, you know, that's even another play for you guys. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you can do different editions right. and updated versions, and what I would want to do is if we were going to do this, every... 200 episodes that we record, we should go back and update the cold calling edition with all of the new things that we learned. And we say, hey, from this episode, this is the newest tactic. Because right now, like everyone's using the permission-based opener. Everyone's using the low friction CTA. Would you be opposed to taking a meeting? Yada, yada, yada. But in five years, all of that stuff is going to be irrelevant. Yep. And we got to stay in the game. So what does like, staffing look like to get a podcast edited, recorded, and launched? Yeah. So at the beginning, it was, uh, it was brutal. So it was just Nick and I at the beginning. And what we would do is we would take the episodes, we would transcribe all of the episodes, oh my and God. we would sit there together. And for 40 minutes, we would 
watch the transcript over audio, and we would X out anything that should be edited because we wanted to make sure that we nailed that tight formula. And then we would send it to like an editing team who would mix the sound and all that stuff. They would send it back to us, and then we would plug it into this platform that would like spit it out to Spotify, all that stuff, right? Eventually, we figured out the repeatable formula for editing a 30 MPC episode. And then we brought on our third team member named Sean, who does basically everything that is not content creation. So Sean now edits the podcast, and he works with an agency to do that. And he has like a set of cuts that are 30 MPC-ified mm -hmm. that he always does every single time. And then from there, like, dude, I, I, Nick and I are not good at aesthetic. We're also like not good with tech. So it's really important that you have a really good graphics agency. It's really helpful to have like some copywriters on staff, especially for things like the email invitations for webinars, the landing pages, um, the newsletter and stuff like that. I tend to write it on my own, but the company page, social copy, things like that. Yeah. It's, you cannot create all of this content on all of these channels alone. And so you need to get really, really good at teaching people the 30 MPC formula and finding the patterns that make you good and giving those to proper vendors and agencies that help you out. How do you teach that? The, it's painful, but the number one thing that you can do is when something lands, when you have a LinkedIn post that pops up, when you have an email that gets replied to, when you have a TikTok video that goes viral, is you should look at it and break it down into the sum of the parts. And you should say the intro is always like this. The subject line is always like this. The thumbnail is always like this. The video title is always like this. And break it down into the five or 10 parts. And do that 10 times as you find success. And eventually you'll realize it all falls in the same pattern. Mm. So we literally have an editing playbook for 30 MPC. We have a webinar formula playbook for 30 MPC. We have a YouTube formula that we were doing a little bit earlier when we were shooting content. And right. it always follows the same formula. And then what we do is we just iterate on the content so that we don't have to think about how to configure the content every time. Nice. And that must have been, is that a difficult challenge, being able to delegate tasks to someone else because this is your baby? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And the, the toughest thing I would say is pre-sponsorships, the hardest thing was justifying spending money. Mm -hmm. Because we would go with these cheap agencies that would be like five bucks an hour to do graphics. And if you look at our first logo ever, it's like, it's ridiculous. It was clearly done by this guy on Fiverr for like $3. And it's like a, a man in a suit shaking hands with someone. And we call it the efficient businessman. And it's hideous, right? What you will find is just get the content out there in the first place, but you will get what you pay for. And the number one thing that we found is sometimes we will have to pay 50 to 100% more for a certain vendor. But if that vendor will tell us what to do, for example, we shouldn't be telling people what graphics should look like. They're the graphic designer. Yeah. We should give them some guidance. And what we look for are vendors who say, hey, I'm taking the intent of what you said, but here are the 10 things you've missed. And you have to pay a premium for that. Right. Yeah, that, that's the whole reason why you would outsource it. Um, how are you managing a full-time job within sales and also managing the podcast? Yeah, it, it was tough, man. So we would record the podcast twice a week. So we recorded the podcast twice per week. And fortunately, the podcast got to this rhythm where we figured out how to prep guests. We knew the editors had it handled. And if you look at like the history of 30 MPC, we really only did the podcast for two years. And we got that down to two hours a week during the workday wow. because we had to do it during the workday because that's when people want to record. And then any other work, LinkedIn posts, writing the newsletter, webinars, I called them weekend copy reviews, where I would literally do all of our writing on Sunday in a coffee shop. So I had those two recording slots, 
And it was funny, like my team would always see me recording with like the mic as the VP of sales inside of one of the conference rooms, which was sort of funny. And then on Sundays, every time I would be in the exact same coffee bean every single time, writing LinkedIn posts and writing our newsletter. Wow. I, I find that hard too as like someone that's a content creator trying to grow other channels. Working on the content and managing a full-time job is extremely difficult. Um, and so I, I kind of agree with you where it's like I was spending a lot of time outside on my free time on Sundays, which I don't really want to do that. I want to enjoy my Sundays. I want to be able to like cook, relax. Do you, how, how has your schedule changed now that you're just doing this full time? Are you still working on the weekends or? It, it's much better now. Yeah. I mean, because the, the VP of sales job is, is not a low intensity job by any means. No. Um, and trying to get 30 MPC to the place where it could support us full time required us to sell a ton of sponsorships and launch a ton of product. And you have to put in more work to do that, but at the same time, you're doing this job. And so one of the reasons that I went full-time is because in order to launch more product, we would need me to be able to do that. And in order for me to do that, I would have had to work 100 hours per week. And I was already working like 60 to 80 at the time. It was like way too much. So now Nick and I, we work between 40 and 50 hours a week sometimes 60 when it's really, really, really intense, but that's wow. because we love it and it's our business, but we try to protect our weekends. So yeah. we protect our weekends. And the other thing is like, we recognize that we're doing this for ourselves. And so we're really good about like, if I notice Nick is stressed or if he notices that I'm stressed, he'll like block time on my calendar and he'll be like, we're doing a, a yoga class together at lunch. Oh, that's right? awesome. And that's like one of the cool things about like running your own thing is like, I can work when I have energy. Right. Sometimes I need to sleep until 10 cause I had a long night or I'm really, really tired. And then there are other times where I wake up at seven and I want to start and I want to leave at three so I can go like surf before the day ends. Uh, Armand, appreciate you coming to New York City. I'm glad we got together quickly. I'll be in Austin next week for the Forrester Summit, but I'm glad we got to connect, get a workout in, and chat more about content and sales. Always good, brother.